I, I love the I love doing this. I think it's been about it might be about three years since we've done this, but I, I'd like to do this on an annual basis. I just think it's that important for us to be able to see what's going on in terms of our ministries and to give you an opportunity to see something really beautiful. And I hope you I hope you see it. It's the the servants and the servanthood that are represented by the different tables, the different booths around the, the perimeter. And when you look at servants and servanthood, it, I think it's kind of moving because uh, servants are beautiful people. And I, I mentioned this in the first service that I think one of the most uh, beautiful men in our church is uh, Donnie Boyd. And uh, I, I said that in front of everybody. I'm saying it in front of you, Kendall. I don't mean to embarrass you or anything, but it'd be weird if I just told him personally. Uh, but when I get up here uh, throughout the week and I see him opening the doors, you know, on a regular basis for the underserved and for the homeless, just to come up here and have a shower, just get some ministry. I just think it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And uh, it humbles me on a daily basis to see that. And that's just that's just one servant from our church. And I know that a great many of you, you're serving in these different ministries that are represented. Some of you, you're serving in different ministries that are not represented, like our Sunday school program and and other opportunities to meet throughout the week, um, counseling, um, all kinds of things that are going on. Uh, the Stevens ministry, good things happening in this church because of the disposition and the attitude of a servant that lies at the heart of our identity as a church, being a family of priests revealing Christ. And so today, if you don't see it already, I hope that I'll help you to see it. And that is just the, the beauty of service and the privilege to be a servant of the Lord. So today, since I really want us to just sort of soak in the beauty, and because I want you to take the time to go and look at the different booths if you haven't already, we're going to kind of keep this message relatively brief. And I know that breaks your heart since you came out in the rain to be here. Uh, but we're going to be kind of direct. And I'm going to a passage where Jesus is fairly direct and, and brief. And brevity sometimes feels a little rude or put offish. And this passage feels that way at first. But, but trust me, as we get into this, you're going to see the beauty of what Jesus is talking about. And I hope that as we go through this passage, it'll essentially sort of provide a lens for you whereby you can see servanthood for what it is. Because when you see servanthood as Jesus sees it, I think it'll just kind of take you to your knees. Okay, so with that, let's go ahead and read this text from Jesus. This is Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come. But woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat. Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? 
So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, this is one of those texts that I don't know that people really like to go to very frequently because sometimes Jesus obviously blesses us and sometimes he bothers us. And this is one of those bothersome texts. But even when Jesus bothers us, he's actually seeking to bless us. This is one of those texts that rubs us wrong. But here's what you need to understand. If Jesus rubs you the wrong way, then you just need to turn around. Because once you turn around, everything Jesus says will rub you the right way. It's not that complicated. And I've pretty much learned that whenever Jesus rubs me the wrong way, I'd say 90% of the time, it's me. Actually, 100% of the time, it's me. And the good thing is, when Jesus rubs you the wrong way, there's an implicit communication from Jesus to repent. To turn around. And whenever we take Jesus up on that invitation to, to repent, to say, I'm sorry, he takes it and he forgives. Because Jesus never tells us to do anything that he doesn't already do. And even when our repentance is incomplete, he still forgives us. Now, this is an important lesson. We think oftentimes when we repent, our repentance is complete. Even when we are brought to our knees and, and we cry and moan and apologize, we know that our repentance is incomplete. I repented when I was five years old. And I've repented a lot since. And I remember in children's church just kind of getting the gospel and crying and coming forward. Then I cried again and then I cried when I got back. I was like a crier when I was a kid. Can you believe that? And I repented and I thought I was sincere. And then you know something else comes up and then you repent. Repentance is a process. Whenever we repent and turn around, Jesus always knows it's incomplete. But he still takes it. And he still forgives. He's so quick to forgive that even when the repentance is lacking, he still takes it. I mean, here's this person who says they're sorry and repents seven times in a day. What does that mean? Like at seven o'clock, they said, I'm sorry. And then by nine o'clock, they had to say, I'm sorry again. I mean, seven times a day, how incomplete could any of those, hey, I'm sorry, be incredibly incomplete. Jesus knows it's incomplete. We know the apologies oftentimes from other people are incomplete, but we grant forgiveness anyways, because that's how it is with Jesus. So if Jesus rubs you the wrong way in anything that he's saying today, I just want you to know, hey, you can turn around. And even though he knows your repentance is incomplete, he still takes it. He's that gracious. You understand that? Now, having said all of that, knowing that Jesus is always right and we're wrong if he's rubbing us wrong. Let's just acknowledge this. This text does hit us in a funny way. It does rub our 21st century Western sensibilities uh, wrongly. I mean, most of us, we grow up in this kind of culture of entitlement and we don't really feel like we're bounded by duty. But all we get in this this passage is, well, in verses seven through ten is this little story about power and position. And so here's this servant who's been out in the field and he's been plowing all day or taking care of sheep all day. And when he comes up. When he comes home, what does the master say? Hey, you look tired. You look beat. You've done a lot. Why don't you rest for a while, fix yourself something to eat, and then later get me something. Is that what the master says? No. 
Basically, he says, I don't care how tired you are, how exhausted you are, I don't care what you've been doing, you prepare my meal first because I'm the master, and then you can fix something for yourself. Now, we don't necessarily like that because we want to be thanked. We feel entitled. But when the servant serves the master, is the master supposed to say thank you? And the obvious answer here is no. We just get this little grisly word of duty. When you've done everything you were told to do, you should say, we're unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. That rubs us raw in in our Western culture. But here's the thing that you need to recognize, and that is for the original disciples to whom Jesus was speaking, none of the talk in verses 7 through 10 would have rubbed them wrong concerning the mindset and the actions and the attitude of a servant. Nothing would have struck them as unique, extraordinary, out of the ordinary, unanticipated. I mean, this is just how servants were back in the day. They did not expect to be thanked. They weren't offended if they weren't thanked or appreciated or stroked. In fact, to this day, in some circles and in some cultures, if you as the the master or let's just say the patron thanks the servant or the waiter, the servant or the waiter gets a little bit creeped out. Like they're waiting on your table and you say thank you and they go, hey, whoa, hey, don't. Why are you thanking me? We're not friends. What is it that you want from me? What are you doing? Why are you trying to invade my space? So the manners that my mama taught me and most of your mamas taught you to say please and thank you no matter who the person or situation, in some cultures, in some situations, that just backfires. That's how it was in Jesus' day. Nothing in verses 7 through 10 would have struck anybody as off-putting or weird or extreme. Or harsh. Here's what would have rubbed the original disciples wrong. It was this insinuation and then outright teaching that they were servants. I mean, here are the disciples. They're hanging out with Jesus. And he's the king. And the kingdom's going to be established. And they're expecting Rome to be overthrown. And when Jesus comes in all his glory and overthrows the Romans and establishes his kingdom, the disciples are thinking, we're going to reign. We're kings. Woo! And then Jesus kind of teaches... And implies in an outright states, well, you're servants. And the disciples are like, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, you know, that's not what we signed up for. I mean, even though Jesus doesn't use the word servant in verses one through four, it's clearly implied because in the life of a servant, your life is not your own. You don't have rights. Your rights are dead. You're servant. And so Jesus basically teaches in verses one through four a couple of things. One, he teaches you shouldn't be giving offense to other people. You need to be very, very careful. Verse 3 says, so watch yourselves. You don't cause other people to stumble. You live about thinking about how everything you do and everything you say and every action you take is impacting other people around you. Because when you're a servant, when you're a waiter, the whole room doesn't revolve around you. You are there for other people. So you don't give offense. Oh, and then you don't take offense. And you don't hold a grudge. At least not if you're a servant, you don't hold a grudge because you're just a servant. And when you're the servant and you're the waiter in the room, the customer's always right. You know how that is? Some of you used to wait tables and you were told the customer's always right. And you knew, no, he's not really. The customer's not always right. There's some jerk customers out there. You know that's not true, but that's your position. You don't give offense to the person you're waiting on and you don't take offense and hold offense because you're just a servant. 
You're not the master. You're not at the center of the room. That's how it works. So the disciples are being, you know, they're thinking, hey, I thought I was going to be the king. I was going to be top of the world. And now you just tell me I'm a servant and I can't give offense and I can't tell people, hey, this is who I am. You just deal with it. And and I'm just going to live my life however I want. No, no, you have to be living your life in accordance with the good for everybody else. But when everybody else lives different than you and they just think they're on top of the world and they think the world revolves around them, I can't take offense at that. I got to be completely humble in the midst of all things, not giving offense and not taking offense. Wow, that's that's pretty hard. So at verse five, they say, Lord, increase our faith. And and from a certain standpoint, that can mean one, two things. On the one hand, here's kind of the flow of thought. And I kind of go with this in verse five. I think they're saying, hey, we we really want to be humble like that, like you, Jesus. But we're not you. You can do it. I don't know about us. So you need to give us more faith. In other words, they're blame shifting. We'd really like to be the people you would have us to be, but you've got to supply us with something we don't have so we can be who you would have us to be. And that's when Jesus says, hey, all you need is the faith of a mustard seed. And you can say the mulberry tree be uprooted and planted the seed. And it's going to happen. It's going to be so it's going to obey you. So that's kind of one line of thinking. The disciples are going, we can't do this unless you supply something we don't have. And Jesus is saying, you got enough. All you need is a Faith inside of a mustard seed. You don't need more than what you don't have, not with regards to faith or power. Now, another way of looking at it, and this is entirely possible and it's compelling too. maybe the disciples in verses one through four go, whoa, 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 I don't know that we want to live that way. And then they say, give us more power. We don't want to be down here. We want to be up here. We want to be on top of the world. So give us more faith so we can have the power to do incredible things. And, And maybe Jesus is affirming, well, you're going to have faith to do incredible things. You've got faith of a mustard seed. You can do powerful things. But then Jesus says in the next few verses, but if you have this power, you've got to use it as a servant. Both of those directions in terms of the passage flow make sense. But the bottom line is the same. And here's what I mean. Whether the disciples are concerned like Jesus, I don't know that I can be who you want me to be. Or whether the concern of the disciples is I'm not sure that we can do what you would have us to do. Whether that's the, whether it's one concern or the other. Jesus' response is this. You don't need more of what you don't have. You've got enough faith. You've got enough power. That's not the problem. If you want to be who I would have you to be, if you want to do what you need to do, you need to get your mind right. You need to get your head on straight. You better know your place. And that's when Jesus doubles down with absolute clarity, saying, you're a servant. Now, that sounds kind of harsh, but when we accept what Jesus is saying concerning our place as a servant, three incredible things happen. We get liberated in three amazing ways when we accept what Jesus is saying that we're servants. And the first thing that happens is is simply this. We get liberated from the me first problem. Jesus teaches really, really clearly the master's needs are more important than the servant's needs. Let's read this again. Verse seven. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? No. Verse eight. Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. The master's needs are more important than the servant's needs. When you accept what Jesus is telling you, that you're just a servant, it kills the me first mindset. And that needs to be killed. Because we do live in a culture that really encourages and even engineers a me first attitude. 
Some of you, how many of y'all heard the, the term helicopter parenting? Does that kind of sound familiar? It's where the parents hover so that if their kids face difficulties or they fall down, the parents are there to pick them up. Well, there's a new term now. It's, it's, it's actually brought about by teachers. I, I think teachers came up with helicopter parenting, but I know teachers came up with this. It's called lawnmower parenting. It's where the parents go in front of the kids and mow down all the problems and obstacles so that they'll never have to fall down and be picked up. It used to be that when parents had kids, this is a few centuries ago, when parents had kids, the idea was they're going to help contribute to the economy of the family. And when we get old as parents, our children are going to take care of us. Now, when we have children from early, early ages, the whole world revolves around them and making sure that, that they kind of grow up in an environment where they kind of recognize, hey, all of life is, is a show. It's a play. And my kid is the star of the show. And all of us, including mom and dad, are the supporting actors to help keep the spotlight shining brightly on them. And people kind of never really grow out of this. And, and what we used to call kids like that, where the whole world revolved around them. You remember the term that we used to use? It's probably not politically correct, so we're going to use it in here. Brats. Remember? Now, here's the thing about brats. Nobody wants to be around them. I mean, you talk about kind of the anti-community. When you're a brat, you're obnoxious. When the whole world revolves around you and you're the god of your own little world, you're obnoxious. And nobody wants to be around you. Nobody wants to be your friend. Nobody really in, enjoys your company. Nobody wants to work with you because you're just a brat. You're obnoxious. Now, have you ever used the term obnoxious with regards to a true servant of God? When somebody's a servant, they're anything but obnoxious because the whole world doesn't revolve around them. When Jesus saves us from our sin... He also is basically saving us from ourselves. And we need saving from ourselves because we've been created in the image of God and that means, fundamentally, we were created for community. We were created for love. And when you accept who it is that God has made you to be, you connect in community. But when you reject that and the whole world revolves around me, myself, and I, and my, my little needs, and my little rights, and all the rest, you become obnoxious and it's the anti-community move. The self-promoting instinct we have to absolutely fight against all of the time. Uh, I, I thought this was kind of interesting. Years ago, Winston Churchill was, was asked, doesn't it thrill you when you speak to a room, when you come to the hall or to the auditorium, and it's just packed, overflowing with people? And Winston Churchill said, I admit that it does. Like, it does thrill me. But... Whenever I get to feeling that way, I remind myself that if I were being hung, twice as many people would have showed up. We need to tell ourselves things like this. So when you affirm who it is that you've been made to be in Christ Jesus, it is destroying the me first mindset. And that needs to be destroyed. It needs to be destroyed in order for you to live in accordance with with who you were made to be, someone created in the image of God, someone made for community, someone made for authentic commu community and authentic connection. Okay, there's the second thing that happens, and that is when we accept who Jesus has made us to be, it liberates us from the oppression of scarcity. Now, here's what I mean by this. 
you know, the glass is either half full or half empty, but we, we tend to live as if the glass is half empty. And so we live constantly with self-protection. We live guarding what it is that we've been given. And that is a posture of fear. You know, the pie is only so big, and so if I give away a slice of the pie, that just is going to mean less for me. And if I'm always concerned about everybody else getting enough to eat, then I'm not going to get enough to eat. It is the oppression of scarcity. I'll give you an example from my own life. When I was younger, this is a true story, I'm not exaggerating. When, when I was younger, my brother and I, we could eat. I mean, we ate, we would eat. I asked my mom later, why is it that we never had leftovers? And she said, well, I couldn't cook enough. I mean, my, my brother and I, we would eat. And it's not just that we ate a lot. When we would sit down to the table, we made sure that the other person didn't have more than us. And it got kind of ridiculous. We would have shrimp pretty frequently because we lived somewhat close to the, to the bay, to, to the ocean. And so there's nothing better than Gulf Coast, legit, real, not in a tank, shrimp. And so when we would have shrimp, and our family loves shrimp, we would count, my brother and I would count the number of shrimp on the other person's plate. So if I had 20, I knew my brother had 20. And then we would compare the size of the shrimp. Because not all shrimp is equal. And so we would check. And then after we were finished eating the shrimp, we would count the tails of the shrimp that were left to make sure that the other person hadn't snuck in some extra shrimp. You know what that is? That's the oppression of scarcity. That's living as if there's not enough and like, oh, somehow I'm going to starve and my parents are going to take care of me if I don't take care of myself and guard these limited resources that are available. I was reading something about the Aztec Indians. I thought it was kind of interesting. Apparently, the Aztecs are still around and there's tribes in southwestern Mexico. And, and this uh, author was making some observations about how there's something peculiar about Aztec Indian culture. And I can say stuff about the Aztecs because, as you know, I'm part Indian. And so I'm just talking to you like, hey, that wasn't nice to say that. Listen, I'm just talking about my people. OK, and so uh, the Aztec Indians, they have this peculiar thing where they don't wish other people well. You know, we say good day or good afternoon or good evening or hope you have a great weekend. You don't have anything like that in Aztec Indian culture. You know why? Because it's a it's an economy of scarcity. That is, there's only so much to go around. And so they're not going to wish you well, because if they wish you well, they're going to have a little bit less wellness for themselves. I just think that sounds ridiculous. If you have two children, well, you used to have one child, but now you have two. The first child gets half as much love. That's the mentality. They have a hard time finding teachers in that culture, because if you give away knowledge, you're going to have less knowledge. If you ask uh, a, a craftsman, how did you do that? And then they share that information and somehow in their estimation, they've just become more poor because there's only so much to go around. And you say, that's just ridiculous. Who thinks of things like that? Me and my brother. We're Indians. In all seriousness, that's the tendency. But when you accept what Jesus Christ has told you concerning your status as a servant, you're leaving the oppression of scarcity and you're implicitly receiving this invitation to step into a, a kingdom that operates on another economy. You're stepping into a kingdom where the father is generous and the rule is abundance. Let me put it to you like this. This is over in Luke chapter six, verse 38. Jesus says, give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. 
The measure you give to other people determines the size of the scoop that comes to you. But here's how we have a tendency of looking at things. How big of a scoop has God given me? How, how much has he already provided to me? And on the basis of what the master has given to me, then I'll measure it to other people. And when you start thinking about it, that's actually kind of backwards. Just going back to waiting on tables. What happens? You wait on their table, then you get the tip on the basis of what it is that you've given to them. We have this thinking of, well, I'm going to wait for the master to bless me. And on the basis of what he's given me, because it's just a limited size of the pie, that's going to determine how much I'm going to give to other people. And God says, that's just not the way it works. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Oh, and by the way, you can't outgive God. Do you trust that when it's all said and done and you've taken care of your master and done his business, that the master's not, do you think he's not going to take care of you? Do you distrust him to be fair? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. When you're accepting the position of a servant, you're stepping into a whole other way of doing life. It's a life of trust. It's a life of abundance. It's a life of generosity that is not just supplied by you, but oversupplied by your father. But to the degree that you say, I'm, just, I'm, I'm not going to be a servant. I'm going to just be self-protective and I'm going to live in fear. To that degree, you're only hurting yourself and you're limiting how much the father wants to Give and pour out onto you. So you accept your status as a servant and it just blows apart what needs to be blown apart. That whole me first mindset, it takes you out of this oppression of scarcity. And here's the third thing that happens. The third thing from which you're liberated. We get liberated from the disease of entitlement. Jesus says very plainly, when you have done everything you were told to do, you should say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. There's none of this. I deserve to be thanked. There's none of this. I kind of envy where the master is. There's none of this. I have rights to be treated like I want to be and to have the last word. And to dip, dip, dip. We get addicted to rights. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be protective with regards to injustice, but this is not one of those things where the master is being unjust to us. There are passages on justice and injustice, but this is one of those passages that's just strictly about the mindset and the attitude and the actions of the servant. And what is being drawn to our attention is basically Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where we've been crucified with Christ. We hung with Jesus Christ up on the cross. When the nails pierced his body, those nails also went straight through our tendencies uh, of sin and self-preservation and self-protection. The nails that pierced his hands and that pierced his feet have also been driven through our rights and our self-protection and our egos. And the good thing about being liberated from our life is his life gets to be lived through us. This is how it's put in Galatians chapter Chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As a servant, you're not always thinking about your rights because you died. Dead people don't have rights. I know that in some political circles, we, we think that some dead people still have the right to vote. They don't. You know, no, no. Once you're, once you're gone, you don't have any rights. And that's a good thing, because once you're gone, Jesus lives in you and through you. And it's not just that you're serving Jesus, it's that Jesus is serving through you. And that's when the effort and the 
I don't know, the, the taxing exhaustion disappears because you recognize not only you're part of something bigger than yourselves, but someone bigger and greater than you is actually at work through your mortal body. And there's this liberation from the entitlement. It's a good thing. Now, I mentioned a little bit earlier that, you know, we don't have to be thanked by a master, and that's true. The master does not need to thank you. He does not owe you any thanks. But I'm thanking you because I'm not your master. I'm a fellow servant. And we can thank one another. And when you go around to these different tables, I want you to be, you know, thankful and appreciative because when you're on the same team together, you thank your teammates. But when it comes to the master, we not only do we not expect thanks from him, but here's what actually happens. When you're serving... At the end of the day, when you've served and you've served well, you are thankful to the Master. Because you, you think two things. Uh, number one, you're thinking, wow, you've already served and you continue to serve me more than I could ever possibly serve someone else. And somehow in the midst of the service, you're reminded of what a good, good Master you have. We have the kind of Master that we don't have to go, man, I don't know, you're, you're unjust here, I better protect myself because I just don't trust that you're going to serve me the way that you need to serve me. He's the kind of Master that you can abandon yourself to Him because you trust that He's already served you more than you'll ever serve Him. Something in the service just reminds you of the nature of the one that you serve and that humbles you. But beyond that, here's really what happens. Number two, when you've served and you've served well and you've done what the Master commanded, at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the month, you actually feel free. And the reason you feel that way is because you are that way. You've been liberated from the me-first mindset and you've been liberated from the oppression of scarcity and you've just... You've been liberated from this disease of entitlement. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, I talk to people from time to time. You know, you go on a mission trip, and those are great. I love the opportunities that we have from time to time to just to go to Rockport or to go to Matamoros or whatever the case may be. And you serve, and you serve well, and you serve for a week. Or you have the opportunity on a weekend to do something extraordinary. And people come back and they always say, I, always got, I got more out of that than I gave. And it happens every single time. You know why that's the case? Because when you accept the position that Jesus has given you, it, it brings you joy. See, there's no master like Jesus. If we were serving any other master, we wouldn't feel that way. But when we serve Jesus, you feel liberated because you have been. And so when I look around at the tables around this room and when I look around at the people in this room, you know what I'm seeing? I'm seeing something that Jesus Christ and Christ alone can do. And I'm seeing people that aren't motivated by guilt and, and they're not motivated by pride because we try not to appeal to either of those things. Here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing some people who are growing in the Lord and are motivated by joy because that always happens. when we accept the position God has given us. And so rather than begrudgingly, okay, I'm a servant, fine. Once you've served for a while, it's like, sign me up. So here's the invitation. It's real simple. If you're serving, keep doing it. If you're not, start doing it. 
And if you're somewhere in between, you know, just look around the tables and say, you know, this is something maybe I need to be doing. Or maybe you're thinking oh, there's something else I need to be doing. But just trust me. If you feel a little bound up, if you feel a little joyless, here's what you need to do. You need to accept who Jesus has made you. And buy in in a very, very practical way. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for the love and the grace You have freely poured out into our lives. <laughs> and, and we know when we serve, when we give of ourselves, You do take Your resources, press down, shaken together, overflowing, just pouring it all over us. And it's a joy to serve you because we can never outserve you. We can never outgive you. And it's not that we're looking to somehow do some kind of cost benefits analysis. If we do this for you, you're going to do this for us. There's, there's just something in being who you've made us to be that is undescribable and cannot be captured in any other way than just to serve. And so, Lord, I pray that you will continue to increase our servant quotient as a church. That we will continue to serve and serve well. And that for those who maybe need to take a step of practical service, binding themselves to other people in service, that you just help them to make that step. Lord, be with us now as we continue in worship and help us to take seriously the opportunities before us to not just please you, as our Master, but to know the liberation and the joy that comes in service. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's blessed holy name. Amen.